If you're just joining in, we're wrapping up this morning a study through um, the letter of 1 John. Now, 1 John, uh, it's fantastic. I hope you've been enjoying this, enjoying the series. I've been loving it, loving it, really challenged by it. I said at the beginning um, that reading the Gospel of John in conjunction with this letter of 1 John would be a really informative experience. I think it would give you new eyes on, on, on the life of Jesus as told by John. If you haven't had a chance to do this yet, I really do hope some of you, and I know some of you have been engaging this, if you haven't done this yet, I want to encourage you to do this now, especially we've just wrapped this letter, we've been working through this. What I'll promise you is that as you read the Gospel of John, it's going to come alive in some really fantastic new ways, in particular chapters 14 to 17 of John. Just so much goodness there, and John is really like unpacking the gospel. So go and do that. It only takes two hours to read the gospel of John if you read it like a novel. You can spend as much time there as you want. You could probably spend a lifetime in that. But um, I do want to hold that up to you. John's purpose for writing 1 John was to help believers have a full assurance of their salvation, but also a full experience of their salvation. He wants every believer, everyone who would profess Jesus as Lord, to be living with a spiritual vitality, an an excitement, a life. And so he spent these five chapters, we've spent this last 10 weeks taking a look at what the Christian life, according to John, is meant to be. Chapter five this morning is a lot like the icing on the cake, the crescendo at the end of the song, the, the varnish that brings out all the wood grain and beauty of the finished product. It's a great chapter, and there's a ton here. There's a ton here. Um, it, yeah, it's been work to try to put an outline to this this week, but I, I just saw some amazing stuff, and I'm excited to get into it together. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, open them to 1 John chapter 5. Let me pray, and then we will dig right in. Well, Father, I thank you for, for being a God who... Um, who loves us, who loved us enough to come and intervene and, and insert yourself into human history, to make yourself known, to, to write to us, to make yourself known through the pages of Scripture, through the person of Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we just pray, would you do that work in our hearts this morning, in our minds? Help us to see Christ. Help us to understand all that's being communicated, all that's here for us. And I I need you. I'm desperate and dependent upon you, Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd help me do this work to speak what you've burdened my heart with this week. And we, we ask this to you, Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So 1 John, chapter 5. Let's read together verses 1 to 5. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Whoever, or sorry, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? These first five verses are John summarizing the 84 verses that have come before it. 
he's, he's writing this down. He's trying to make it succinct because he wants us to see all that he said before. He's bringing it together into a beautiful literary bow for us. And he opens with these words, everyone who believes, everyone who believes, because he's writing to Christians and to be a Christian is initiated and started with a belief in Christ, a, a profession of trust in Christ. Romans 10, 9 says this, and we often quote it while we're doing baptisms. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. This is what initiates the Christian life. Now, however, that said, there existed then and there exists today a hollow form of this, a hollow form of Christianity by which people profess Jesus is Lord, but then they fail completely to live as if he is. It's following Jesus like this that has led to many, many different statements, but I got a couple different ones up on the screen. First one, we got Mahatma Gandhi. This is a famous quote. You've likely heard it. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Um, there's an, another quote there down below. If you grew up in Christianity in the 90s, um, you heard, you're probably familiar with this quote from DC Talk's One Good Album. Um, it says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their mouth, but deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And then you know what comes next. Is this one for the people? You know the words if you grew up in the church in the 90s. But yeah, while I don't agree that this is actually the single greatest cause of atheism, I do agree with what it's getting at. What it's pointing at still rings true. There's those who would profess Jesus as Lord completely fail to live as if he is. We know the way to eternal life is not just to profess Jesus as Lord, but to obey him as Lord. In chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 3, he said, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Claiming to follow Jesus, well, not obeying Jesus cannot be. Jesus said it himself. He said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And once we begin to see that Jesus' commands are not burdensome, they're, not to, they're, they're actually designed to bring us joy. It becomes a pleasure to keep them. They're not meant to rob us of joy. They're meant to, to bring us to joy. But what are these commandments? What are these commandments? We've dealt with this a little bit before, but I just want to ask this question again. What are the commandments that Jesus gives us? Well, we talked about this, um, and so again, this is by way of reminder of much of what we worked through in chapter 2. When Jesus says, if we love him, we will keep, keep his commandments, he's not talking about the 613 laws of um, the, the former covenant with the Jewish people. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the one command as a result of the new covenant that he's inaugurated with mankind, this new and better covenant. The command is love. John 13, we got it up on the screen, John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're not a people who follow a big, long list of rules 
though this is many people's perception and maybe even your understanding of what Christianity is, this is not it. We're a people who march to one central command, that command of love. Our job, the Christian life, is not to run around with a list of rules that we check off. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. We're to be ruled by and underneath this one central command, which is love. So we don't get in a situation and go, what does the law demand of me here? We get in and go, what does love demand of me here? What does love look like lived out here? John uses this word love 46 times in his letter, because love, it's the defining characteristic of the Christian life. It's what Christianity is meant to embody. The chief evidence John provides for us to know whether we're in relationship with God or not, whether we're obeying God or not, is whether we have love and love for others. If the life that Jesus lived has been downloaded and e-transferred into our hearts, it's going to express itself as love. By this, he says, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If we love God, he's saying, we will love others too. It can't be any other way. And we'll do it because he's commanded it. We don't, we don't do this, though, to make him love us. We don't do this to make him love us. This rather is the characteristic of a heart that has been already loved by God. And that love gets into our heart. It multiplies, it expands, it overtakes our old nature. It imparts to us increasingly a new nature that expresses itself as love. We cannot be recipients of God's love and not demonstrators of God's love is what John's saying. Now, some of us, you might be thinking though, Oh, uh, what if I don't feel love for others? What if I'm not feeling that love? Maybe you got a really long commute and some of the great Vancouver drivers just get to you. Maybe you have a really annoying coworker. Maybe you have a horrible parent or a really frustrating sibling. Maybe you're in the middle of a legal dispute with a business partner. Maybe you're in the middle of a really nasty divorce. What do we do when we don't feel like loving? Before I try to answer that, um, I wanna say that all of us are gonna find ourselves at one point or another in a situation where what naturally wants to come out of us is probably not gonna match the, the any sort of sane definition of what love looks like. But when we find ourselves there, what do we do? We're all gonna find ourselves there. What do we do? How do we overcome hate and annoyance? How do we act out of love? How do we overcome our old nature and put on this new nature, this new identity that Christ says is ours? Verse four, it says we're gonna be overcomers, meaning we will overcome these old tendencies and we'll put on new ones. But how do we do that? Well, I wanna say the love that Jesus demands, it's not just a superficial one, that sort of fakey, gloss, varnished, superficial, polite, fake, smiley version. He actually demands that it comes 
from our heart. It's got to be much deeper than just a surface level, like fake show. It's got to be a love that is not just fake, but draws its inspiration and also its strength from God's love towards us in Jesus. John 16, 33, Jesus says, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. This is why John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, when he says world, he's not meaning the planet. He's meaning the world's ways. Everyone who has been born of God will overcome the world's ways in ourselves. Pretty point blank. He's just laying it out there. We don't overcome these feelings, these, this anger, these frustrations, these tough situations, and they're tough. We don't overcome them by our own strength. We overcome them through Christ's strength. We do it through our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and when we actionably live our lives in light of that and who he is, this will change inside of us. John straight up says the ones who overcome are the ones who place their faith in Jesus. But how can it be that it's only through Jesus that we're capable of doing this? You might be thinking that. Why not Buddha? Why not Vishnu? Why not you know, Lao Tse or Aristotle or even Jordan Peterson for that matter? Why can't we overcome it by any other way? Why can none of these other means empower us to live a life of love? Now, I, I get it. We, you, know, you, you might be thinking, Jesus calls himself the son of God, putting himself in a unique class, but how do we in fact know that he is? How do we know if, if, if the only way to, to actually live a life of love is through Christ himself, how do we know that he's the one who can do this for us? How do we know he is who he says he is? These are the questions John wants to begin addressing now. As we read on in verse 6 to 12, he wants to show us who Jesus is. As you've, you've likely asked this question before in your past, and, and I, I don't know what sort of answer you've got. I, I've heard things like, well, you just got to believe, or the Bible says so. Um, yes, yes, but there's more than that. A belief in Christ doesn't require shutting our brain off. And so what John wants to do now um, is, is show us three, three different witnesses that testify to who Jesus is. And what's amazing is that the Bible hasn't even been written at this point, so nowhere in here does John just say, believe the Bible. He wants to present three witnesses for us. So in verse 7, John says, well, actually, let's just read this together, verse 6 to 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, and this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son does not have life. Well, you might be wondering, what is going on there? Um, (laughs) 
This, um, most commentators will say this is the most perplexing sentences in all of John's writing. So you're in, uh, it's confusing. This is the writer who wrote Revelation too. They're saying this in light of John writing Revelation. This is confusing, but I want to help make it make sense. To begin with, John's putting forth three witnesses to testify to who Jesus is. Now, um, in this day and age, you needed more than one witness in order for something to be considered valid. In a court, you needed two or hopefully three witnesses. So John has presented three. He says there's three that testified, the spirit and the water and the blood. But, but what does he mean by these? What, are the, what is the spirit? What is the water? What is the blood? What is he getting at? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not the water only, but the water and the blood. These, these two symbols, the metaphors of water and blood, they're rich themes, powerful witnesses to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. In verse 6, John gave us a great big fat clue. I just read it, a great big fat clue as to what he's getting at. He said that this is he who came by water and blood. And so what he's getting at here with water is is the event that marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his baptism. The symbols of water and blood, they summarize Jesus' life and ministry. And, and John's using these references to bookend who Jesus is. His baptism and his crucifixion. So I want to invite us to just flip, hang, hang a left in your Bible over to the book of John. John 1, 29 to 34. I just want to read quickly, so we know what John's alluding to, um, Jesus' baptism. So John 1, 29 to 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, it is up on the screen. And I need it up on the screen, so go ahead and flip there. <laughs> the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man whom you see the spirit come down on and remains is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify, this is God's chosen one. Now, just quickly, so... Some are likely confused. We flipped a left to the book of John, but this isn't John that's speaking. This, not John the disciple, this is John the Baptist. So we're reading a book by John the disciple, quoting John the Baptist, who says, Jesus is the Son of God. Now it's important we know, John was revered as a prophet. People were coming from all over Israel to hear him. And he, when they asked what he was doing, he said that he had come to quote, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet, to make straight a way for the Lord. In other words, John was sent to reveal who the Son of God, who the Messiah, who the Christ figure was. And it's right up on the screen. He says this, the one whom you see the Spirit come down on and rest and remain, he is, he is that one. Here it is, John the Baptist testifying, he saw the Spirit come down, rest on Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. So why is Jesus the central way? Well, one witness says, because I saw the Spirit descend, land on him, and remain. 
Now, high priests couldn't have the spirit remain on them. They had to go in. They had to do a big ceremonial preparation to go into the Holy of Holies. And they could only be in there for a short minute, do their business, and come back out. Here it says the spirit came and descended and rested on Jesus. Furthermore, in Matthew's gospel, it says that after Jesus came up out of the water, a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So who's John pointing to as a witness? Well, John the Baptist... Everyone else who was present at the time that would have seen the Spirit descend. And thirdly, God himself, voice from heaven, speaking, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Thank you. <laughs> but the bookend John uses for the other side of Jesus' ministry that serves as a witness to his identity is that of the blood. So he begins with the water and then he goes over to the blood. So flip a little bit to the right from where we just were in John. John 19, 31 to 37. Again, this is gonna be up on the screen. It says this, then the Jews, so this is Jesus, Jesus, uh, an account of Jesus' crucifixion. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So they had to quickly speed up this crucifixion process. They couldn't have them hanging there on their holy day, so they were going to come break their legs, so they suffocated to death much quicker. But they show up. The soldiers came. They broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. So Jesus has already died. They don't need to break his legs. He's already dead. But to make sure... Read on with me. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately, what comes out? Here's this, these two symbols again. Blood and water came out. And he who was, has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to, to pass to fulfill the scripture that not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture. They shall look on him and who they've pierced. So John puts on the stand John the Baptist, but then for the second material witness, he hops on the stand himself and he testifies and says, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And he, he wants to focus in on Jesus dying on the cross because at this time, many, many, many people had seen Jesus alive after the crucifixion. There's likely some theories bouncing around what happened. Jesus wasn't really dead so what does John say? No, he was really dead. He was really dead. And we read in 1 Corinthians, 500 people at once saw him after he resurrected. Many, many, many different disciples, all sorts of accounts of people are included into the scripture that saw him after, after his, his crucifixion. So there's widespread knowledge that Jesus guy who was on the cross walked around afterwards. Acts 1 says that he spent 40 days with them at one point. What John wants to show is that he actually really died. How do you know he's the son of God? Because he came back from death. Because he fulfilled all of the scriptures. In alluding to the blood and the water, what John is doing, he's not just citing John the Baptist or John the disciple who testifies. He's pulling thousands of years of Bible history. He's pulling prophecies. He's pulling every single Bible character onto the stand and saying, they testify as well. This is the Son of God. 
There are three that testify. The spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Read on with me, verse 8. Oh, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, so all of these stories, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God, here's one more witness, he has the testimony in himself. What's he getting at? What's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. The third witness is the Holy Spirit. We talked about this earlier in the series. We don't just serve a God who came down and inserted himself into human history, who took on human flesh. We serve a God who has taken up human residence. If you are Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and John is saying that he is there to testify to us the truth of who Jesus is in the Scripture. Up on the screen, John 15, verse 26 and 27, says this, is Jesus, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me because you have seen me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is in us to bear witness to us, bear witness in us, and bear witness through us. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is in us to bear witness to us, to bear witness in us. So evidence it out of our lives and in turn bear witness through us into the world. The reason we know Jesus is the son of God, the purchaser of life eternal that John has been getting at over and over and over in this letter is not just because somebody says the Bible says so. Not just because of the thousands of witnesses to Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, but also because of the witness that lives inside of each one of us if we are in Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit. All of history has been shaped by Jesus Christ, but John doesn't say that's enough. He said, you're going to be shaped by Jesus Christ as well, and that's the testimony that God is who he says he is in Jesus. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has this life. Whoever does not have the son does not have this life. If, if we in fact believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to give what he claimed to give, John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, then we will be experiencing it. The Holy Spirit is going to come alive inside of us and he's going to vivify and make come alive a new life in Jesus. Whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And then in verse 13, this, the statement I'm going to read now, most would conclude this is actually the summation of the whole book. This is the fulcrum point for everything John has said. It all concludes and is brought together into this one verse. So listen, I write these things. So everything that I've written to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, why? That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. 
Now, this word know in Greek, it's not just communicating the idea of understanding or comprehending. That's not what he means by that you may know that you have eternal life. It's communicating the idea of having and holding, of wearing something, of presently possessing something. So here's an example. I know that there are investment funds that people with lots and lots of money can make. They can put their money in and get a 20 or even a 40% return on investment in several years. I know that exists, but I don't know that. My RBC high interest savings account nets me 1.2%. I know it's there. I don't know nothing of it. Here's another example. I know there's a language called Cantonese, and I don't know one single word of it. Not a single word. Maybe should in Vancouver, but I don't. I know childbirth is painful. I've seen it happen twice. You should, men, never try to never see this. It's, can't unsee it. It looks painful, but do you know what? I know nothing of the actual pain of childbirth. Nothing of it. John's writing this so that, not so that we will theoretically know Jesus. Not so that we will theoretically know that there's eternal life that I'm to one day participate in when Jesus comes back or I die and I go to heaven. Jesus, John's not writing this to let us know that we will know God one day. He's writing this to let us know that we can know God today. We've spoken about how we can know, in fact, that Jesus is the Son of God, the mediator of a new covenant. Now we're going to talk about what John wants us to experientially know. What does he want us to know? If, if our Christian life has nothing to do with the present, if it's just hanging on the hope of one day experiencing God, it's not a faith at all. It's a hollow faith. It's a type of faith that people look on and dismiss because it looks nothing like the life that Jesus said he actually came to give us. In the last eight verses here, John's going to use this word no seven times. I'm a bit of a nerd. I went and took a look to see, hey, how much do other people use this word? John actually uses it 10 times the biblical average. He wants us to know something. John loves this word and he's using it like crazy because he wants us to know three things. Three things that Jesus has opened the way for, which the Holy Spirit is going to administer in us. Three things that are ours as recipients and partakers of the eternal and abundant life. They're up on the screen. The three things he wants us to see is our confidence in prayer, our victory over sin, and the intimacy with God that is available to us. I want to begin by looking at point number one, which is our confidence in prayer. So read with me. Chapter 5, verse 13 to 15. I write these things so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request that we have asked of him. 
because we know Jesus has stood in our place, taking our guilty title, gifting us his righteous title, opening a way for us to communicate with God, we know that one day we will stand face to face with him, but that one day, or that, or that today, we can actually participate in a, in a relationship, a speaking relationship with God. Hebrews 4.16 says, because of this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in, and help in our time of need. Now, think on the implications of this for a second. We have access to God, the God of the universe, the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe listens to us. When Jesus shouted, it's finished, Matthew says that the curtain was torn in two. The place where God held himself back from humanity was broken open. And this is telling us we can access him now. We can speak to him. We have, we have access to the God of the universe. This should blow our minds quite a bit. We have a backstage pass to God. We can go into him anytime. Jesus died so that we could have this. No other religion in the world offers it. I want to ask us, church, are we making use of this? Are we making use of it? Are we blown away with it? By it, pardon me. We have a direct line to the God of the universe. And he's told us to bring him requests. Can I just ask us as a congregation for a minute, if you believed, really believed, that God heard what you brought to him and was going to grant it, what would you ask him? Take a second in your own head. Think of this. If God really hears your prayers and really answers, what would you ask him? What would you pray to him? Since we know that God does pray and has commanded us to, and Ephesians says that he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine, the question then becomes, what should we be praying? What should we be praying? Or maybe, what shouldn't we pray for? If, if we have access to the God of the universe, what shouldn't we be praying for? What shouldn't we be asking? John only provides one clarification for this instruction in verse 14. He says that it needs to be according to God's will. So we're not out praying for Lamborghinis and Learjets. Um, some laugh, but you clearly haven't watched Christian Broadcasting Network anytime soon. A lot of people are praying for those types of things. But Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're to pray according to the will of God. So what does the scripture tell us God wants for us? What is the will of God? John 16, 24, Jesus says this tells us that whatever we ask the Father in the name of Jesus, he'll give us, that our joy would be full. That our joy would be full. Knowing this, why don't we pray for joy? If you want to know what to pray, what's within the will of God, why don't we pray for joy? Why not pray for a deeper experience of the life that he's promised to give us? God's after our joy. Let's pray for it. 
Why not pray for a heart that would find joy in him? Why not pray to be delivered from the sins that rob our joy? Pray that God show, would show us wherever we're settling for anything less than him. This is what John's pointing to. To point us to pray. Pray for the blessings that he says are ours. And this is essentially what prayer is. It's drawing the blessings of heaven into our present reality. But additionally, this text tells us that our prayers can do the same things in the life of another. Take a look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, but I don't say we should pray for that. Let's unpack that in a second. We should pray for those around us who are falling short of a full experience of who Christ is. Falling short of that joy that is available for them. But try to make sense of this for you. God, God tells us that our prayers here actually help to impart life into others. So when we're stuck in sin, wrestling sin, the prayers of one another are actually going to help give life to someone else. This leads us into our second point, is that we have victory over sin. We have victory over sin. He's saying here it's through prayer that we're going to participate in that victory. We're to pray for those, then, who are fighting against their sin. But notice, he doesn't tell us to, to pray for those who are fighting for their sin. Doesn't tell us to pray for that. Because those people aren't actually Christians. We don't pray for that because you cannot conquer sin apart from the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, John has already said you're going to be fighting sin. If you're not fighting sin, you don't have the Holy Spirit in you and therefore you're not a believer. So we don't pray that they would be able to fight their sin. They don't even believe they are in sin. We would pray that the Holy Spirit for those people would show up and give them a new heart. What John's getting at here is the power that we have in prayer and how it works in partnership for us to experience victory over sin. This should drive us to the throne of grace. What do we pray for? We pray for joy, but we pray for victory over sin because he said it's there and it's available for us. We're well, well into the second point now. This new life that Jesus wants us to enjoy includes victory over sin. It's a victory and an enjoyment of being freed from our sin. Verse 18 and 19, we know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're from God. We're no longer sin's ragdoll. Now, I spent years of my Christian life not getting this. My understanding was, you know, I, I was just going to be tossed around by the same old sins over and over and over until I died or Jesus came back. But that is not what the scripture says. It's, it's, it's not what it says. John's been hammering on this over and over and over again. There is a different type of life, a different quality of life available to us as believers in Christ. I want to ask us, I asked us this earlier on in the series, but what sin have we been succumbing to believing that we're never going to be free from? 
What sin do we keep going to? And we've kind of just given up the fight. We're like, that's going to be there forever. It's my thorn in the side. Church, listen to this good news. According to the Bible, that's not true. You're not going to be victimized by that sin forever. You can't be because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. He's going to free us. God's standing ready at our defense, asking us to engage him in prayer. And he's promised, promised, pardon me, not to leave us in that place. I've got a scripture up on the screen, Romans 6. I'm quoting it from the NIV because I think it just says it really sweetly. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument to righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Cling to that. John keeps bringing it up. He wants us to see this. Sin will no longer be our master because we're not under law. We're under grace. We're under Jesus. It's good news. We're no longer mastered by sin. We're not slaves of it. We're slaves of righteousness. So because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we have access in prayer. We have a confidence in prayer. We have victory over sin. And the last thing John wants us to see, verse 20 and 21, we have an intimacy with God. Read it with me. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So that we may know him who is true. In his son Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Let me ask you if somebody came up to you and they were to say, Do you know Jesus? What would you say? What would you say? Many of us know about Jesus, know lots of theological things about Jesus. They're important. We should know theological things about Jesus. He's, you know, the one true God begotten, not made. He's fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, also fully God. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's through Jesus that all things were made and was not anything made that was not made through him. But do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Many of us know Jesus biblically. We grew up in Sunday school or Awanas or whatever it is. You, you know the stories of Jesus from the flannel graph all through your life. Maybe you read the Bible regularly. You know the, the whole Bible is one testimony about Jesus. Your Bible Jeopardy skills are top shelf. But do you know Jesus? When oh theological truths and even biblical stories about Jesus yet not know him intimately. John's saying the eternal and the abundant life that Christ died in order to give us is centered on around an intimate relationship with God in Christ. That's what the whole book is about. I write these things to you that you may know, experientially know, have in your hand to hold and to know type of know. 
John 17, 3, Jesus says the same thing. He says this, this is eternal life. So this is what eternal life is, in other words, that they know you. Eternal life is to know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Knowing things about Jesus won't save us. Memorizing Bible verses won't save us. Reading your Bible every morning won't save you. Reading Grudem's systematic theology won't save you. Showing up here is not going to save you. Only an intimate relationship with Jesus will. It's what Jesus said eternal life is. It's what's on hand for us. Now, I've got to be clear, okay? We're not going to know Jesus apart from these things. You cannot. Somebody shows up saying they know Jesus and they reject the scriptures. They don't know Jesus. This is Jesus or God's revelation of Christ, the Bible. You cannot know Jesus apart from it. But there's an intimacy with God that this is meant to direct us toward. That's what he's getting at in verse 20. He says he's given us understanding so that we may know him. We can't know him apart from the Bible. Short church. Knowing that these three things are tangibly ours in Christ, how do we go about partaking of them more? How do we go about participating and engaging with them more? That's John's challenge. That's the climax of this whole book that we've been studying for the past 10 weeks. He wants us to engage in this. How do you do that? Knowing Jesus is enjoying Jesus. John is calling us to deeper enjoyment of Christ. And I want this for myself and I want it for us. We have a confidence in prayer. We have a victory over sin. We have an intimacy with God, and I suspect many of us aren't engaging in that. Our prayer life doesn't reflect this. How we fight our sin doesn't reflect that we believe this. How we press into silence and solitude and our time in the word, and even prayer as a way of knowing and being intimate with God doesn't reflect this. We're living a hollow shell of Christianity and we're missing out. We're missing out. There's more here for us and I want to call us as a congregation to engage in this. To believe it's true. To put our money where our Bible tells us our faith is. To put our lives on, on stake here. To invest into this fully. To cash out for this. It's here. It's real. John says it's real. Jesus says it's real. What does it look like to engage in it? i close by reading one verse here. The last one in John's letter, he says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it's easy to look at this and go like, why is he talking about idols? Why'd you go here now? Because he wants us to see the things that we've been going to for life other than Jesus. He's set up a picture of what life is to look like. He's saying, engage here, and now he's saying, where are you going other than that? And so I want to close this with the same question. What have we been looking to for life? 
What have you been looking to, to give you joy, to give you purpose? What have we been looking to, to define our life's experience? There's a lot of idols, I think, that God wants to tear down this morning, and he wants to redirect us back to an enjoyment in himself. That's on hand. Jesus, I just thank you for this word. You spoke through John this letter that's been written to direct us back to you for enjoyment in you, satisfaction in you, participation in you. I pray that this eternal life, this Zoe life that we've been examining for these last 10 weeks would take root in us, that we would become deeper participators, that you would bear witness in us, Holy Spirit, but also through us that the world would look in and they'd see us enjoying you and want that. We want to be marked by love. We want to be people whose very nature has been transformed. We invite you, Holy Spirit, would you come and do your ministry work in us? The word says it's ours. We ask for that. We ask for that victory over our former sinful natures. It's not who we are. Would you help us to live in who you objectively say we are, righteous children purchased by the blood of Christ, the one true God come to earth I pray, Holy Spirit, that your residence in us would become even more alive. We want satisfaction. We want joy in you. And your word says it's ours, so we just ask for it now. In the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, amen.